0: All right, let's open up our Bibles to Acts chapter 13. We're going to be looking at verses 42 through 47. Acts 13, 42 through 47. We've been working our way through the book of Acts, Acts named after the Acts of the Apostles, the work of the church. And it really focuses on Peter and then Paul. And we're now getting into this section of Acts where the focus is on Paul and his missionary journeys and how the Lord uses him and his friends as they continue to do the work that they've been called to by Jesus. Acts chapter 13, starting in verse 42. As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly, saying, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you have thrust it aside and judged yourself unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us, saying... I have made you a light for the Gentiles, that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would teach us today, that you would convict us and encourage us and build us up, that you would make us strong and give us wisdom. We are praying, Lord, that you would conform us, that you would transform us, really, to look more like Jesus, our Savior. In his name we pray. Amen. If you've been with us for long enough here at Redeemer, you know that I was converted in 1990. I was 18, going on 19. And um, when I was converted, I was so absolutely certain of Jesus. So convinced and certain assured that jesus is the son of god that he lived died and rose again that this is the book the book that i can read and it's god's word and i can trust it so absolutely convinced i mean i went from being confused at best conflicted to being absolutely absolutely convinced that this is the truth had such certainty And certainty about these things led to some confusion because I didn't understand how it is that I could have gained such certainty and clarity on these issues while my friends and loved ones didn't. I was the first Christian in my family. There weren't a lot of people following, no people following Jesus in my family. I was the first, and I went... I wanted so badly for my mom and my dad to believe, uh, for my, my, my sisters and my brothers to believe. I, I, I wanted this. And my friends, and as I would share the gospel and have opportunities, oftentimes very poorly, I admit, very, like, lots of swearing included when I was sharing the gospel back then. I just, I didn't, I didn't know how to do it. So I would share the gospel, whatever, and it just no impact, and I, I was confused by it. And it was discouraging because the people I really wanted to share the gospel with and have them share eternal life with weren't receiving it. And it was discouraging and frustrating and it was even scary. And as I continued on in faith, as I learned to be patient, the thing that I began to really experience is something that the scripture teaches us and that is that God is still at work. That the gospel still is the power of God unto salvation. And then eventually my sister Michelle, who is a member here, I think she's here in this service. What's that? (laughs) Michelle was was the next one to believe in the gospel, transformed by the gospel. And then it was our mom. And then 19 years later, what is up? My dad believed. And we were just, like, so frustrated. Like, why is it taking so long? It's been five years. It's been 10 years. It's been 15. It took me a year of wrestling with it. Why is it taking him so long? And so it's easy for us to get discouraged as the church or as Christian when you face various kinds of opposition, when the people that you love the most aren't believing. But here's what I want us to take away from this passage that should be an encouragement to us and clarify some things for us. And the principle is this, the gospel awakens some, it angers others, but it always advances. Now the gospel does awaken people. It does change people's lives. Paul says it is the power of God unto salvation for all who believe. So we know this to be true. We've experienced this to be true. But it does anger some people. Some people don't want to have anything to do with it. It repels many. I would say it repels most. Nevertheless, it is always advancing because God cannot fail in what he is attempting to do. So here's what I want us to look at, I want us to look at how the gospel awakens, how the gospel angers, and then how the gospel advances. So, in verses forty-two through forty-four, we see how this this gospel awakening is taking place. Now, this is happening on what we call Paul's first missionary journey. He's with his friend Barnabas. He's got other people with him. They've they've set about to preach the gospel, to establish churches, to see disciples made. And as they're going on their way, there are conversions happening but there's also confusion right just like in any any situation that we would find ourselves in as christians some people are believing other people are rejecting and there is some some angst right there is some there's some longing to see the gospel spread and people that you really care about rejecting it at the same time and so this is happening in this passage and paul winds up warning them hey listen You don't want to be the people who miss out, right? Before we get into our verses, right before this, he's telling them, you don't want to wind up being the people that the Old Testament prophesied about, that the gospel is here, it's in your midst, it's all around you, but you're acting like you're blind and you can't even see it. So Paul begins to do this. He's preaching the gospel. He's got his friends with him. They go to the synagogue where all the Jews gather together. Paul fits right in, right, as a Jewish man who's highly educated. He goes there. The scripture is read, and then they give him the opportunity to teach. And when he does this, people are impacted. Look again at verse 42. As they went out, right, so they've preached the gospel. People are blown away. They're trying to leave the synagogue, right? As they went out, the people begged that these things might be told to them the next Sabbath. So the people who are there listening to Paul are hungry. Like they, they hear this gospel, they hear this truth out of the scripture and they're impacted by it. They, they find it beautiful. Maybe they recognize the truth when they hear it, right? They they want more. They don't want less. And some of you remember what this is like the first time you begin to encounter the truths of the gospel when they're when they're presented very clearly or maybe you're reading the scripture and you know this and you want more. Now maybe, maybe there are some who aren't believing, but they're still interested. They have questions. I mean, I remember this. I found the gospel beautiful before I found it believable. Does that make sense? Like, I, I, I thought, I was like, I want this to be true, but it's too good to be true because I need, I need what it's, it's too on the nose. It's, it's addressing exactly what I need. I need my guilt to be taken away or I am going to die they wanted, they wanted more. And, of course, those who were believing wanted more because that's a part of our faith. They, we want more. So these people were hungry, and there are these people who are believing and they're growing. Look at verse 43. After the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout con- converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas. So, in other words, they, they have embraced the teaching from Paul and Barnabas. They've embraced the gospel, right? When it says people would follow Jesus, it doesn't just mean that they're geotracking him like through the, the background of, of, of the scenery. They, they, are, they have adopted his theology. They have embraced this faith that has been preached. And so these people now are believing. Parts of them are believing, and they're committing their way to this. But it's what's said next that I find really helpful. They were following Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. So many follow. They are what we would call apparent converts. They look like converts. We don't have any reason to think they're not converts. We, we trust that they are based on their profession. So if many are following, but then they are encouraged to continue. In other words, wow, you just professed faith in Christ, right? People are getting baptized. This is awesome. Continue. That's the word. Continue in the grace of God. It's interesting because it's almost like a lot of churches, a lot of Baptist churches in particular, like once you get baptized, it's high five, you're on your own, see you later. You, you made it. You're in. This is great. You're a part of the club now. You can get the tattoo. Well, if you're dumb, you can get the tattoo. I got the tattoo. No, like, you can't take that back. Like, you, you think like, oh, we're, you've arrived in a sense. Not that you're perfect, but there's, you know, we're good. And, and Paul doesn't do that. Paul doesn't say, hey, you professed the faith. This is great. He says, listen, it's really important that you continue that you persist, that you continue to grow, that you seek, that you read, that you fellowship with the saints, that you don't give up, that you don't think that you've arrived, that you don't think this is all there is to it. Because there are minutes and hours and days and weeks and months and years ahead, and for every single part of it, you will need the grace of God to continue. Do not forsake the grace of God. Do not stop where you start, you continue. And we see this in Galatians, right? In Galatians, Paul is addressing these Christians, and he's telling them, listen, you began so well. You began with faith. You began embracing grace. But over time, some of you have drifted back into trusting in your own righteousness and your own works, thinking that God loves you more or accepts you more because you are so together in your living. But that's not the gospel. Because this is our tendency, right? Our natural tendency even as believers, is to drift away from the truth, is to trust more in ourselves and less in God because the principle of sin still remains in us, which is why it's so important to continue in seeking God's grace. You know, the gospel awakens people, right? This is exciting, right? Conversions are exciting. But you know what's more exciting than conversion? You know what's more exciting than ba- baptisms are exciting? You know what's more exciting? sanctification that's exciting meaning the growth the maturing when people are bearing fruit when you can see more of the grace of God in their lives that's really exciting so it's all good it's all exciting but so Paul is saying listen you've got to continue in this because the reason this is the reason we have to do this is because really because of Matthew 13 you guys are familiar with the parable of the sower Jesus in Matthew 13 says, like, well, this sower goes out to sow seed in a field, right? And what does he want to do? He wants to reap a harvest. He's going to throw all the seed he can out there in order to reap as much of a harvest as possible. So this is beautiful. And he goes on to explain, well, as he sowed, some fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil. They sprang up quickly. Since they had no depth of soil, but when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them out. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. You can even see in the parable, like, hey, listen, you see the sign of life, you see the, 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 the bud, you see it coming up out of the ground, that's exciting. You know what's more exciting? The harvest. Right, some sixty, some a hundredfold. Jesus goes on to explain this parable farther down in the in the chapter, and he says, uh, "Hear then the parable of the sower. When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. This is what was sown along the path. As for the what was sown on rocky ground, this is the one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself. He endures for a while." The gospel awakens people. It awakens us to a life, right, a a, a being, a continuing, not just a punctiliar moment of our lives. We're like, wow, I remember that day I got saved, and that's the whole of your Christian experience. That's just the beginning. The brightest parts lie ahead. So... We see the gospel awakening here. And what I love, by the way, uh, what we see happening in verse 44, it says, the next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. (laughs) I love it. Paul shows up, goes to a synagogue. It's probably moderately populated, you know, religious folk. Yeah, let's explain the word. Paul unpacks the gospel, shows them Jesus in all of these Old Testament scriptures. The next week, the whole city turns out to that particular synagogue. Craziness. How did they do that? They hired a, they hired like some company to do an ad campaign, right? They did an ad campaign. They did they probably got their branding on point. Um, they had, probably had some spokespersons, probably like a Christian athlete, somebody like that. It would be a big draw. Uh, what did they do? They did nothing. You know what they did? They just told other people what happened. It's called word of mouth. Now, for the record, I'm not against branding. I like branding. I'm not against advertising. I'm pro marketing. I think all that stuff is good, and they are helpful tools. But the most powerful ingredient that goes into getting the word out about your church is simply word of mouth, the testimony of people who have heard and seen. Why? Because to be honest, their words are more believable than an ad or a flyer. We get ads and flyers all the time. Do you know how many people want to be my friend on social media? They're, 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 all these women want to be my friend on social media. And I was like... Why do all the... Oh, these are, these are bots. These are not people. These are not people. These are not real people. Usually the picture tells you they're not real people. But, uh, but it's, it's like we just know, like, if you get an email, you get an ad, you get a flyer, somebody's trying to sell you something. I don't fault them for trying to sell it. It's fine. But when somebody else says, no, I'm telling you from my own personal experience, that's the best sandwich I've had in my life. Where are you going the next time you got... $10. You're gonna to go to that sandwich shop, right? Because you heard from somebody who actually believes it. Everybody in the city turns out because of word of mouth, because there's this guy, Saul, Paul, he used to persecute the church. And now he's preaching about this Jesus that he used to hate. And it's the most amazing stuff I've ever heard in my life. You gotta come see it. So everybody comes out. Brilliant, beautiful not selling a thing, giving it all away for free, just like God and the gospel. And this is really the essence of revival, what we call a revival and awakening, right? When, when Christians talk about revival and awakenings historically, it basically works like this. Sometimes we use the revival to refer to all of this, and sometimes we parse it out, right? So revival is when the regular, normal preaching and reading and praying over the word of God begins to have extraordinary results. These aren't results that are, completely different, it's just more of what God normally does. So it's more conviction, more growth, more faith, more conversions, right? More starts to happen. And a lot of us as Christians, we are revived because we've grown dull or weary or bored or lazy or apathetic, our faith has grown weaker. And so in the midst of revival through the normal ministry of the word, We are suddenly revived, and it impacts a larger group of people. An awakening, more specifically, is when there are mass numbers of conversions or a larger number of conversions in a particular area over a particular period of time through the normal ministry of the word. That's happening here. It happens throughout church history. It happens throughout scripture history, the history of redemption. Um, We see it happening here. Many people are being converted. Believers are being built up. The gospel awakens some, but the gospel also angers others. We see this in verse 45, right? But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Listen, the good news is not good news to everybody. The good news does not make everybody happy. If you understand it and you embrace it, the good news is the best news and you are filled with a joy that the world cannot take away but it doesn't make everybody happy. People get angry over the gospel. And there are, I think there are two reasons that people get angry over the gospel. It's because of what the gospel says, and it's because of what the gospel does. Or in other words, there's gospel content that offends people and makes them angry, or there's gospel effect that offends people and makes them angry real briefly, when you start talking about the gospel, right, the message of redemption, you really can't preach about the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and how this is the means by which God saves humanity without talking about sin. You have to talk about sin, the sinful condition of the human heart, that we are spiritually and morally bankrupt, if not in the eyes of our uh, brothers and sisters here in society, certainly before the eyes of God. We, we have each gone our own way. So you've got to talk about sin and responsibility and not measuring up. That offends people. Some people do not like this. You, you, you'll talk about the idea of grace, grace being if you want to be right with God, if you want to you know your purpose and become the person you're supposed to be, it will happen by the gift, the kindness, the grace of God, not by your own efforts, not by your own strength, not by your own ingenuity or intelligence. You cannot save yourself as Americans... We don't believe that. We believe in saving ourselves, doing, being a self-made man or woman, right? Being the entrepreneurial person who goes west, who conquers, who overcomes. We want to do our own startup, right? We want to be our own influencer. We want to, we want to just become something out of nothing. It doesn't work that way. It is God's grace that saves. Some people are offended by the idea of atonement, that Jesus would die for sinners, That the father, that God the father would pour, pour his wrath and justice out upon his own son in order to forgive the actual guilty parties. Some people see this and they think wrongly, they think wrongly, this sounds like child abuse. Why would a father punish their innocent son in order to forgive other people? Not realizing that this is not a father and a son, this is God who eternally exists as Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And it's the Father and the Son who agree before time even began, we will save these sinful people that we are going to create for our own purposes, and this is how we will do it. It's not this gross idea of satisfy, you have to satisfy the wrath of an angry God. It's God saying, I will satisfy my own justice in order to forgive sinners who don't deserve it. But nevertheless, people are offended by that. They're offended by the notion of God coming first before family or even before yourself. That see, the gospel confronts pride and says there is, there, is, there is nothing for you in this world that will bring you to God except the offer, the free offer of his grace, his promise. So some people are angry over the content of the gospel. Other people are angry over the effects of the gospel. And by the effect, I mean that lives are changed when When somebody becomes a Christian, they become different, right? I mean, unfortunately, a lot of your personalities stay the same. But, like, the the, the character of the person... I have the worst personality, believe me. I'm joking. I have the worst... I'm not joking about that part. Uh, Like, you're still the same you, right? When I was converted and I was sharing the gospel with my closest friend, I loved this brother. And I wanted him to believe. And we're talking, and he's looking at me, and he says, you look the same, but you're not the same. I I remember this burned into my brain, and I, 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 it, it, he understood that there was something different. I'm still me. I still got my quirks and my, my problems, my issues, but there was something that had changed. And the, the effect of the gospel offends a lot of people because when people are changed, relationships change. And when enough relationships change, right, this impacts not only other people, it can even impact society. And when society and culture changes, people get really upset, so there's a number of levels at which people get upset over the gospel. They're angry over the whole Jesus thing. It's good for you as long as it doesn't impact me. The gospel moves people. And if it moves people, it generally moves people to either worship or to war. Right, that's what I see. And that's what's happening here. There are people that are being moved to worship, and then there are others who are being moved to war to wage War. This is happening here because there's jealousy here and in verse 45. The Jews saw the crowds. They were jealous and began to contradict what was spoken by Paul, reviling him. And of course they're jealous, right? Because here comes, I mean, just think about it from a worldly perspective. Here comes the new guy uh, and everybody loves what he's saying. Like we had like 50 people here last week. We have 1,500 people here this week. What the heck? You might feel a little jealous, but on top of that, he is explaining the scriptures in such a way that shows that it all points to Jesus. So they are jealous on a number of levels. They are frustrated with, with what's happening. So this gospel that we love and cherish and preach, it does awaken, but it also angers. But it always advances. And this is the encouragement to us. And we see it in verses 46 and 47. Because here, Paul says, well, it is necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. This is part of the rebuke to those Jews that were rejecting his message. It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life. So behold, we're turning to the Gentiles. There's a lot going on here, a lot to misunderstand and get offended by, so let me try to make some things clear. First of all, why to Israel first? Why to the Jew first? Why does the gospel first go to the Jew? You might say, well, what's that all about? I mean, doesn't it go to everybody? First, it goes to the Jew. And this is repeated in a number of places. Paul says this in a number of places specifically. But the reason the gospel is first preached to Israel is because the gospel comes from... Israel, that's where it comes from. The law, the covenants, the promises, right, the, the, the sacrifice, the temple, all of it is pointing to Jesus. All of it is prefiguring, typifying Jesus, these promises that have been given to Israel. And so Israel has, in a sense, been prepared for this, right? They've been nurtured in this all along. So, of course, the gospel is first going to be proclaimed to the very people from whom the Messiah comes, and from there, it is supposed to go out into all the world. There's a number of passages. Let me just give you a couple that highlight this. Romans 1:16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first, and then also to the Greek. To the Jew first, yes, but also to the Greek. It is for everybody, but it first goes to Israel. Romans chapter 9, verses 4 and 5, it says... They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Of course, it goes to Israel first. It only makes sense. But then it sounds weird. Some people might think it sounds racist, even. Because Paul says, oh, so uh, listen, I brought you the gospel. You rejected it. Guess what? I'm done with the Jews. I'm going over to the Gentiles now. Because you rejected it, I'm going to the Gentiles. Some people are like, well, that sounds like you have some sort of animosity. Here's the thing. If you know anything about Paul, if you've read Paul's letters, read Romans in particular, read Romans 9, 10, and 11. Paul loves Israel. Those are his brothers and his sisters, right, uh, on, on, that, on that cultural level, right? He loves them, and more than anything, he wants them to believe. He wants them to receive the gospel. He says in Romans, I could wish that I was sent to hell, and I, I, I could wish that if it would save just one of my brothers. He loves Israel, but they are rejecting the message. And so Paul says, we're taking this to the Gentiles. So let me clear up a couple of things here. Now, some people would say, like, well, okay, so, oh, the, Jew, oh, the Jews rejected... Uh, Jesus and the gospel. So Paul's going. What does that say? What does that say about the Jews? It says nothing about the Jews. What do you think the Gentiles do when they hear about Jesus? They reject him. <laughs> the Jews are not doing anything different than the Gentiles. The difference is they had the privilege, the benefit of having the promises and the law, the scripture together telling them The Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, here's the kingdom, here's what it's going to be like. They had all of that. And then when the Messiah shows up, the majority of them don't believe, just like the majority of Gentiles don't believe. Most people won't believe. It's not because there's a deficiency in them because of their ethnicity. It's because there's a deficiency in all of us because we're human sinners, and honestly, when I see this, when I see like, okay, they're, they're not going to accept this message, it really is making this point, right? That no one is nurtured into the kingdom of God. We like to think that they are, right? Because we, we teach our kids, we catechize them, we instruct them, we read them Bible stories, we get them their own Bibles, we send them to class, we send them to camps, we hope and pray that they'll listen to Christian music because, ooh, secular music is bad. Like, we do all of these things in the hopes that we will nurture them into the kingdom. And all of those things are good and important, and those are things that God can use. He oftentimes does use them. And certainly when it comes to the ministry of the word, that's the main thing that he uses to bring people into the kingdom. But you, when I say you can't nurture any of the, anybody into the kingdom, I mean, for all of, all of your nurture cannot guarantee a conversion. All of the love and investment and prayer and, and, and teaching that you give to your children cannot guarantee that they will believe. Israel is a prime example of this. They had everything, and most of them did not believe. Now, many of them did. Clearly, Paul's one of them, right? Many of them did. We see that all these people responding to the word, and many of these people are Jews. So why then is Paul saying, listen, you're not accepting it, so I'm going to go to the Gentiles? This is not a new idea. What Paul says, hey, listen, because of your rejection of the gospel, I am now shifting to focus on the Gentiles. A couple of things are happening. One is, this was prophesied. This is not a surprise, This was the plan from the beginning. The plan from the beginning was for Jew and Gentile to be reached with the gospel to make one new person, that we would no longer be a one nationality people of God, that we would be made up of every nation, every tribe, every tongue, every ethnicity, every race. The kingdom of God is diverse in that way, unified in one Savior. So it's not that this is a a, a thing that was unexpected. Oh, well, the Jews rejected it. I guess if we're going to reach anybody, we better go to the Gentiles. It was always this way. In fact, what Paul is doing here, is he's quoting Isaiah 49, 49.6. I have made you a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. That's been promised from the very beginning. When you look at uh, Abraham, when the beginning, when Israel's beginning is kicking off, the covenant made with Abraham in Genesis 12, 15, and 17, what's the covenant? Abraham, I'm going to bless you. I'm not just going to give you a son. I'm going to make you the father of a nation. In fact, a nation so big, you can't count its inhabitants. In fact, through you, I am going to bless the entire world. All people will be blessed through you. Why? Because through him is coming the Savior, not just the patriarchs. Patriarchs give way to the prophets, give way to the Savior. It's been the begin- plan from the beginning. So, yes, the majority of the Gentiles reject Jesus. The majority of the Jews reject this. The problem, the real problem is nature, our human nature. The need is God's grace. So now, he goes to the Gentiles. And this is just the time frame of his particular calling. He starts off going to the Jews. He's going to the synagogues. But his calling is to go beyond that. So he starts with his people whom he loves and desires to see saved. They continue to reject. And now he knows his calling is clear. He's going to focus in his ministry on reaching the Gentiles who have not had the privilege and the luxury of having the word of God given to them for so many generations. The gospel always advances. That's what we're seeing. We can throw up roadblocks and people can show resistance and people can get offended and we can be persecuted or shut down or silenced for a time. But in the end, the gospel always advances. We will face rejection. We will be discouraged because we don't see God doing something in a particular person's life or we don't see someone converted. We, we so, we're so hungry to see God do more of what we've seen him do in our lives. And we're looking around and sometimes when we don't see the people that we care the most about believing We might be tempted to give up. We might be tempted to wonder if it's even real. But if we take a step back, consider what we know, what we have read, what the Spirit convinces us of. I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes. We know this. So what this means, because the gospel does always advance, because it is it is a, a, a truth, right, that God will always accomplish his will. We should be persistent in our prayers and in our preaching of Jesus. We should be patient in the slowness of people to respond, because how many of you were quick to respond? I wasn't. I mean, a year, a lot quicker than my dad. That doesn't mean I'm smarter than him. <laughs> Might mean I was much weaker. I don't know. It's all in God's timing you got to be patient to let God bring about the work and be surprised. Like, be happily surprised at what God does. I know sometimes we think, like, well, you know, if I had faith, I wouldn't be surprised because I would just believe that God's going to do it. Sort of, kind of, I don't know. I think you can actually be surprised, and it's not always a sign of unbelief. Sometimes it is. But, like, when I go to, like, a haunted house during Halloween, uh, probably Catherine and I would go together if we were going to go to a haunted house, right? We'd go to a real good one. Not the ones that they touch you and they hurt you, but, like, like a, a fun one, right? I know I'm going to get scared. I'm going to go, oh, I'm going I'm to do that thing where my arms go up on my chest to protect me from the invisible man. Like, so, like, I know I'm going to get scared when I go in there. So when I go in there, like, did I not have faith? Did I did I not believe I was gonna? No, I knew I was gonna get scared, but I still go, and then I'm really scared. It's not that much different. Like, listen, we know that God can accomplish anything. We know that nothing is too hard for God, and so we preach the gospel and we pray and we wait for God to go to work, and then when He does it, we're surprised because it's God doing what only God can do. That's always shocking. He's real. He changes hearts he changed me, he changed you, and he's continuing to do that, that will always be a glorious surprise that we hopefully saw coming. And when we don't, when our faith is weak, it don't slow God down because God accomplishes his will always at all times. The gospel awakens some. I think most of you have experienced that. It angers others, but it always advances. So just... I want to encourage you, God is at work. He is at work all around you in the people's lives that you really care about. He is at work. He is at work in the people's lives that are around you that you haven't spoken to yet. And maybe, maybe some of the work that he's doing in them is to prepare them to hear from you. God is at work in you. And our, our, our response to all of this should be to lay hold of the word of God that by faith we may lay hold of Jesus who is at work in all of us. God is at work, right? And he will not fail. He doesn't drop the ball. He doesn't fumble. He's not like us. I I go to work. I make big, embarrassing mistakes, right? Uh, God goes to work. He, He doesn't fail. He succeeds. Every plan executed perfectly. Every promise faithfully kept. He will not fail. He will not fail in the world. And he will not fail in you. We, as God's people, should be encouraged. And if you, if you are not a Christian, if you don't yet believe, then I would encourage you to spend time talking to some of the people here who have come to know the reality of the gospel, who have come to understand the truthfulness of the things that Jesus said and did. Let their word of mouth rise your level of curiosity or interest enough to read for yourself and I'm praying you will, you will read and taste and see that the Lord is good, that he forgives sinners who come to him through faith in his son. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we need your grace and we need it every day. We pray, Lord, that, that you would continue to work in us, transforming us in our character, helping us to grow and become more like Jesus. We pray, God, that you would, you would cause your church to grow in maturity, in depth, in wisdom, but also in number. Lord, we want to see more people come to know Jesus who will glorify you with lives of faith, love, worship, and obedience. We pray, God, that you would protect us from the assaults of the devil, from the, discour- the discouragement that comes from our own unbelief and doubt. We're praying, God, that, that you will keep your promise that you will succeed in building your church. In Christ's name we pray, amen.